Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, June 5th, 2014, the Trash Can Football Edition. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm an editor at Slate, and I'm the dad of Harper, who is six, and Lyra, who is nine. And I'm Allison Benedict, also an editor at Slate, and the mom of Harry, who's five, Sam, who's three, and Wally, who's one. Hi, Allison. Hey, Dan. So to start off this week, uh, we have two quick pitches to make for you, our beloved listeners. First of all, if you enjoy our podcast, Mom and Dad Are Fighting, please tell your friends. Seriously, like, like pause your phone right now, like right this very second, and then go to your email program and send three friends an email saying that this podcast is great and you should listen to it. We'll wait. We'll totally wait. Pull over okay. if you're driving. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a good point. You should totally pull over if you're driving and do that. But since you've already pulled over, maybe email four people. Okay, so welcome back. Um, the second uh, pitch that we want to make quickly is that if you are a fan of Slate, you should consider joining our membership program, Slate Plus. You will get behind-the-scenes content about how Slate is made. You will get bonus podcasts like my Game of Thrones recaps with Willa Paskin. Uh, this week, in particular, you'll get extras about David Hagelin's amazing long-form reporting project about mental health in the NBA. And we also have a searchable recommendation database with every recommendation made in every podcast, including this one, since the dawn of time. So it's free to try for two weeks and go to slate.com slash plus to sign up. Okay, pitch is over. Sorry. Uh, on today's episode, Allison, we are going to talk about teacher gifts. What do teachers actually need? How much is too much when you're giving a gift at the end of the school year? We'll be joined by an actual elementary school teacher who goes under the name of the Teacher from the Black Lagoon, who will give us the skinny. <laughs> we'll also celebrate Father's Day a little bit early, as Allison will quiz me on how good I am at traditional dad duties and pastimes. Plus, so remember my ethical dilemma from last episode when I didn't know what to do about those two kids parked in a hot car at the Harris Teeter, and Allison, you were like, you made the wrong choice. So about a million listeners wrote in telling us that we were both totally wrong. So we're going to actually go to an expert, and we're, we're going to talk to Tabitha Kelly, who's the Bureau Chief of Arlington County Child Protective Services, who will tell me what I should actually have done. So if you have topics and you want us to talk about them, if you have questions you want to ask us, please email us at slate.com. That email again, M-O-M-A-N-D-D-A-D at slate.com. Or if you've got a question that you want us to answer on the air, please call and leave us a message anytime, day or night at 424-255-RUDE. That number again, 424-255-RUDE. You can remember it because it's, it's what I am to our producer, Chris Wade. All right. But first, let's uh, have our parenting triumphs and fails. Allison, you want to go first? Yes, I have a triumph. Um, so uh, let me first update everyone that is wondering from last week. Sam is now in underwear and pooping in the potty. <laughs> Wow, that's a quick uh, turnaround. Yeah, really. but that's not even my triumph. He must uh, listen to the podcast. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, Harry, and I actually hesitate to talk about this. So, I don't know. I'm curious what listeners think, and we might want to talk about this issue in a future to- 
podcast, which is like how much we re- are revealing about our children on this podcast. But <laughs> let's set that aside so that I can pat myself on the back. Harry had been great in terms of his behavior all year at school. And then in the past few weeks, um, he had been misbehaving and his teacher said something to me about it. And I think that I handled it well. Um, we talked to him and I mean, my husband was like, oh, this is what boys do. Don't worry about it. And I never miss. What did the I teacher like, say? Such a goody two shoes about his misbehaving. He yeah, was like, like, he was doing more playing than learning. He was like sort of, you know, laughing a lot, had hands on other kids, was distracting other kids, mm-hmm. seemed not focused on his work. Not the Harry that we know and love is what she, how she said, how she said it. I mean, he's always the Harry that I know and love, but anyway, we spoke to him, you know, lovingly but sternly and um, did not, you know, he had a lot of excuses, but we, I, I believe pretty strongly in always siding with the teacher. My parents always did that as well. I know a lot of parents, you know, don't always do that. And But I think it, even if perhaps he has been, he had at times been accused unfairly and other kids were instigating the problem in his mind, I think I trust the teacher <laughs> that it was him. Um, and if it wasn't, it doesn't really matter. He still should be behaving. I expect him to behave. So anyway, we spoke to him, and then we said we would check in with his teacher every night after school for a week, and um, and we did that. It was kind of like, I think it probably she was like rolling her eyes that I was right. constantly what, emailing what her. What have I wrought? Right, exactly. But I <laughs> wanted to follow through because I told him that I would, and it worked. I mean, who knows? You know, I, I'm sure he'll misbehave again, but he he did change his behavior, and I'm proud of him, and I think... You know, we didn't punish him. We just dealt with it. I think that's an excellent triumph. Good job. Uh, I also have a triumph this week. Uh, Sometimes a triumph is not something that you do, but something that you don't do, Allison. So uh, I also... Thank you. Thanks. Yes. um, I didn't blow up every single day. No, no. So um, we, I bet we'll also at some point have a whole episode soon where we talk about kids and sports and how bananas some parents get. Um, but I'm just touching on this for now, uh, and we can come back to it later. But so Lyra is on a softball team, my older daughter Lyra. I'm an assistant coach on the softball team, but I'm like the lowest assistant coach on the totem pole. Like there's like the head coach and there's two other assistants above me. I'm like the Senate president pro tempore in the Arlington Tigers line of succession. Um, but I'm also the only coach on the team who doesn't care even a little bit whether we win or lose. Like at all. So specifically, I want the kids to have fun. And like generally, I can't really bring myself to care about the results of a softball game between a bunch of nine-year-olds. And sometimes I feel guilty about that. Like often I feel like the other coaches are a lot more devoted and they put more into it and more passion and they give like better pep talks and they plan lineups and stuff. And I never do any of that shit. Um, But so this weekend – the team had two games, and I was out of town for both. Uh, but I got some emails, I, you know, over the course of the weekend, and I got two emails from the other coaches that made me like seize up in sort of a little bit of like an aneurysm of rage. Um, the first one was from the head coach, and it referred to the first game of that weekend as a quote must win for playoff seating. Uh, And the second email was all about how one of our assistant coaches, uh, one of the other assistant coaches, was suspended by the league for the second game of the weekend because she yelled at a teenage umpire about a call at the end of the first game of the weekend. So I don't know if 
the coaches listen to this podcast. Um, and if you do, I really love you guys, and I'm really grateful for all your hard work and dedication. But my parenting triumph this episode was not replying to those emails because nothing good would have come of that. And I'm sincerely glad now that I did not because I was like very heated at that moment, but I'm trying to relax about it now. Wait, I'm, I'm sorry. I have a question. Were you most upset that at the contradiction there, that there was like, we must win, parents get riled up, and then sort of, you know, punishing this woman for being riled up? No, I was upset. At, I was upset at the notion of a game being a must win. And I was then upset to find out that, in fact, one of the assistant coaches took that so, so seriously that she then yelled at like literally a 13 year old umpire yeah. uh, about a call in yeah. a game. Yeah. Okay. Good job. And then, but on the other hand, I did talk about it on a podcast, plus <laughs> alienating those parents forever, but hopefully they don't listen. They're the only people I hope don't listen, but okay. I love you guys. All right. So uh, our first topic today, um, school is almost out. My kids only have 13 days left of school. Allison, how about yours? I don't know. I don't have the count. End of end of June. <laughs> I don't know. My kids show up every morning and say, 13 days left, so I know. <laughs> uh, but the end of the school year means for some parents a time to show your children's teachers how grateful you are. Maybe you send along a gift card to Amazon. Or maybe, as I'm reliably told happens in one Washington, D.C. private school, you let teachers draw gifts out of a bag and one of them gets a week in your second home in Tuscany. Yeah, either way. But how much is too much? What do teachers actually need and what do they never want to see again? Joining us today by phone is, well, she's asked to be called the teacher from the Black Lagoon. She's a teacher in a suburban public elementary school. Thanks for calling in. Hi. So the first question I'd ask is, what are the teacher gifts at the end of the year or over the course of the year that you never tire of getting that you find useful or sweet or charming or and restrained and nice um nothing says i love you like cash so anything related to you know, a <laughs> gift card for let's say amazon or um just you know a nice restaurant or just a gift card for like visa gift card that's an awesome gift so, so oftentimes teachers have to take out extra jobs to pay for their day job, but it's really nice, you know, when there's something extra there. Um, so that's one of the favorite gifts. So it seems like, um, you know, given the choice between um, a gift that is like some, just something nice for you or that supplements your income or something that is classroom specific, at this point, by the end of the year, you're happy to just have the thing that is just for you. Right. I mean, yeah. you know, it, that's always a question I have is teacher appreciation week and stuff is that, supposed to be something for the classroom or for the teacher. So um, any gift, I'm sure, is appreciated. And the most appreciative gift, I think, to receive is just a nice note from a kid or from the parent. Um, Do you really mean that? I actually mean that. (laughs) I can share what the nicest gift I received this year was later on if you want. But I think by the end of the year, it's, you know, crash and burn if you don't get everything done. So you're trying to get all these things done for report cards and key folders and meetings taken care of, and if, you know, a parent or student chooses to write a nice note and take time on another day and do that, that's, that's really sweet. Um, and I truly mean that. But if they want to include something else, you know, the teacher's not going to say no. So it is appreciated, too. Absolutely do you feel like no. you're being paid back? Like, have you shelled, do you shell out a, a lot of your own money during the year? Um, yes. <laughs> yes. Give us an estimate. Like, how much of your own money would you say you shelled out this year for your classroom? Personally, or compared to other teachers, I think that's going to that's gonna be teacher to teacher, depending where you're at. Yeah. Um, 
I know that this year of my own money, I probably shelled out probably a thousand dollars. Oh. Okay. I but, hope everyone. I, mean, and I hope I've everyone. Been, all of your no. parents give you Amazon <laughs> gift cards. I mean, but it depends what you want. I've had some special programs going on where you know if the school wasn't going to pay for it or the money somehow ran out from the PTA. I wanted it to happen, so it was going to happen no matter what. Um, again, that's not typical. I wouldn't say, but at the beginning of the year, um, a lot of money goes for supplies. Yeah. So, yeah. Now you, I mean, your school you told me is uh, is in a fairly affluent district, and you you know, are the do you have parents who go like crazily over the top? Have you ever gotten a gift where you thought this is like not this is so much of it is not cool? You know, personally, uh, there was one year where it was over the top. Um, there are legends and stories that live for other teachers where I joined the school of some interesting things of like a suitcase with cash in it that had to be returned. But um, I know the district has put a monetary placement on how much money that each family is allowed to contribute um, to the teachers. And I know so that so that's year. a rule in your district that the, that's, that there's that's some a new rule that just came into place this year. Do you know how much? Um, uh, I'd have to. Look. I think it's. Fifty or a hundred dollars. I think it's got to be about a hundred dollars because I know there's a couple of families that gave the the max and they split it up for, you know, during the holiday time and then teacher week. I think it's a hundred dollars. I'd have to look. <clears throat> but I I did not have one of the legendary suitcase stories. Um, I did have another a story where about three years ago or four years ago, um, my class this person wasn't even a room parent did go over the top. It was very nice, and it's something I'll remember forever, but it was, you know, sometimes it can be a little embarrassing when you're receiving all these things and a, such a huge deal is being made out of it, whereas your colleagues, you look across the hall or the rest of the school, and there's not a huge banner for every one of them or something, you know, sticking out in the lawn and having the principal come tell you you can't, you can't be there if you don't know about it. So there were signs. There was, like, a huge feast where each family brought in different things to reenact this King Arthur's feast, and there were some large monetary, you know, items as well that they brought to help the class and myself. It was over the top, though. So it was, you know, appreciated, but it was a little bit inappropriate. Well, that's hard because, you know, part of it is thoughtfulness, but you always get the sense when a gift gets that big that there's also some sense of one-upsmanship between parents, right? Parents sort of get in a little unofficial pissing match about who can be the most awesome to a teacher they legitimately like, but that does put you in an uncomfortable position. Right. And I mean, it puts me in a weird position, in an uncomfortable position with the other parents in the class, as well as with my colleagues and my administrators. So it's, it's very hard. So, I mean, if parents want to do it, do it privately, I guess. That's always been my issue with these teacher gifts. I totally, you know, think teachers deserve to make far more money they, than they do and lots of respect. But it does put parents in, in in a strange position, particularly parents who don't have a lot to spend. Our class does anonymous group gifts, and whether you give or not, your child's name goes on the card. But even that can't be very pleasant for a family who might not be able to give. Um, so I actually, I was the asshole who... My, in my first year of public school, when the when the note came, went out from the class parent about teacher gifts, I actually looked up the Department of Education's ethics rules because I I want to give. I mean, I'm like fine. I we have mon- the money to give, and I would like to give, but I felt like it seemed unfair for 
for other families, and I was told to stuff it. (laughs) Shove it. Definitely (laughs) stuff it, Allison. I mean, I feel like those rules are there to be publicly adhered to, but privately maybe sometimes discarded when necessary. In New York City, the maximum amount that parents may be asked to contribute to a teacher's gift is $5 if the gift will be given before the end of the school year and 7 for gifts at, at, as the school year ends. That's what the policy says. And I know my district, when I was talking about the $100, that's not saying for... I know in our class we have like a, a room parent or in our school we have room parents. And they each send out a letter asking for, I think it's $20, to cover everything for the year. So, you know, you don't need to send an extra supply money or whatever else to cover weird field trips or something. And it goes toward teacher week. But that's, that's not suggesting, like, they need to pay X amount of dollars. And, you know, I, I feel awkward. I don't think, you know, parents need to send in anything else. I mean, I know what my job is as a teacher, and if they want to go above and beyond, fine, but I would do that personally and in private. Um, I mean, I have one student this year where I don't know if they can afford it or not afford it or just choose not to send in. Like, we have Flower Day, which is it's a fun day where each kid brings in a, a flower, and together they make, like, a class bouquet, and that's something done across my school district or in my school, as well as I know other schools do this across the country, and the one student forgot or just didn't bring in a flower, and he came up to me and he said, you know, I'm going to give you a hug instead. And I thought that was nice, or a high five, or just a simple thank you. And that, that's really you know, nice. appreciated as well. Right, and obviously and everything, was, oh, I'm sorry, but obviously everything that, that anyone might consider giving you is appreciated, and the thought is appreciated, and the note is appreciated, but is there any gift that, like, <laughs> that is just, like, that no one should ever give a teacher that because it's inappropriate or because you just have so many of this thing that you don't need it anymore or because it is difficult to handle or deal with? Um, I have a couple. Um, <laughs> good, <laughs> good. So, I mean, teachers, you know, the mug thing is great. I know, like, a lot of outlets or a lot of stores have mugs with number one teacher or all these teacher-themed things with pencils and erasers and whatever. I mean, the teacher only needs so many mugs, so it's nice. But, you know, I would strongly suggest, you know, forgo the mugs. Um, we have lots of them. <laughs> or anything Apple-themed, so apples oh, are great. Damn. But you can only <laughs> take so much of that. <laughs> it's like if you were, you know, an office supply worker, do you really want to get all these bouquets of pencils? You know, maybe if you're not living in, you know, a Meg Ryan movie, I don't think so. Uh, All right. Um, Well, thank you. Thank you very much, teacher from the Black Lagoon. These are excellent tips. Um, I I really appreciate it. Also, do not send alcohol with kids on the bus. Oh, that's happened? (laughs) (laughs) That's actually the best gift. That is the best gift. It's very thoughtful. Send it on the bus. (laughs) Yes. All right. Um, Thanks so much. Congratulations on the end of a school year, another school year. All right. Thanks. Bye. Thanks. Bye. All right, moving on. In lieu of a listener call today, we're going to throw ourselves back into last episode's parenting ethicist discussion. If you recall, uh, I ran across two kids aged about maybe 9 and 12 locked in a hot car in the Harris Teeter parking lot, and I did not know what to do about them. I, I weighed a bunch of options and took probably the worst one, which was to wait around for a while, and then when nothing happened, I bought them a bottle of water and left it on their trunk. And then as I drove away, I saw that their mom had finally come back. Well... 
Allison, obviously, because this is her job, told me that that was bullshit. But also, you listeners had a lot to say about that. And most of you, almost everyone who emailed in, asked a simple question, which was, why didn't I call the police? Maybe even more importantly, why wasn't calling the police even on my list of possible things to do? And so we decided to follow up on this, and we're very happy to welcome Tabitha Kelly, who is the Bureau Chief of Arlington County Child and Family Services in Arlington, Virginia, who is going to set me straight. Hello, Tabitha. Hi, Dan. Hi, Allison. Hello. Thanks for Thank joining us. Thank you for us. having me. So in that situation, Tabitha, bottom line, what do you think I should have done? Bottom line, Dan, my recommendation is that if you ever see a child left unattended in a vehicle, to absolutely call 911 or your local emergency number immediately. So that's the bottom line. But that's a great bottom line. And I mean, it's, it is obvious that, you know, I sort of that crossed my mind in the parking lot while recording the podcast. I didn't even bring it up because it just seemed like outlandish to me. But why do you think I was so hesitant to even call, consider calling the cops? Well, there seems to be this concern from others about condemning another parent's, you know, ability to parent or meddling in someone's business. Um, So a lot of people, you know, just do not get involved. But the paramount concern should be the safety of a child, period. That's that's just it, because you could, you know, save a life, prevent a tragedy. Tabitha, what would happen if, so you call the police, you call 911, what would happen? The police would come and would, would the, would the parent be, um, would something happen to the parent or would the police come and just make sure that the kids are okay? Um, it, it depends. It could be as simple as just a warning counsel. Um, they also contact us at Child and Family Services um, hotline when they have some concerns about a child's safety. And so we may get involved. Certainly they're mandated reporters, so they will call our hotline and then we will take it from there. And I mean, I think that's what, of course, makes me hesitant is, is oh, geez, I, do I really want to throw the book at this mom? But but at the same time, I really want her to not lock her kids in the car again. So this seems like the obvious way to make that happen. Well, absolutely. And, and just because uh, Child Protective Services may get involved, our goal is to strengthen families and to support families and obviously to protect children. So it's not about a condemnation. It's about information and prevention. So if you look at it with that in mind, CPS's role is certainly to help engage families. We do a lot of education and outreach, and we and we give support to families. Do you feel that as an as an observer is can I like draw some line of oh well if the kid is above such and such an age probably they can take care of themselves or is that not my job to draw that line or make that consideration? Certainly. That's a great question. And so there are a couple things to keep in mind in terms of kids being left unattended in cars. So obviously the heat in the car rises quickly as the summer months are approaching. So there is the the threat of vehicular heat stroke. Um, Kids goofing off in cars can knock a gear into, into place and create an accident or the child could be at risk of carjacking or child abduction. So you just don't know. And so my rule of thumb is to, 
that no child should be left unattended in a car. It's better to be safe than sorry. Although they may look older, they may have some compromised functioning, you know, albeit health conditions or disabilities that you just don't know. So I would rather tell your listeners and encourage you all to just call call 911. I guess the idea is put the situation in the hands of someone who is actually qualified to deal with it instead of just making like ad hoc decisions in a parking lot when you don't know anything, for example. <laughs> yes, certainly. All right. Well, thank you very much, Tabitha, for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time. And thank you to all our listeners for writing in. It really was actually kind of jarring to both of us to get every email that said, why didn't you guys discuss calling 911? So that was a wake-up call for both of us. People were really nice. They didn't, like, actually call us idiots. But still, we did get a lot of emails. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Tabitha. Well, I appreciate that people cared enough to discuss this very important topic. Thanks, Thanks, Tabitha. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Dan, another perspective on this comes from Kim Brooks, who wrote this week on Salon about her experience leaving her four-year-old son in the car for a few minutes while she ran into a store. She was in a rush. Uh, she wanted to buy kid headphones before she and her family were taking off on a flight. Uh, her, her kid was objecting to going into the store, so she made the quick calculation that it would be easier to just run into the store quickly, get the headphones, run back out, than to deal with a tantrum while she was going into the store. And in the meantime, uh, a bystander took a video of this, uh, a cell phone video of her leaving her son and, and coming back to the car after a couple of minutes, and she was ultimately arrested for contributing to the delinquency of a minor. Uh, in the end, she... Uh, made a deal and, and had to do, I think, 100 hours of community service. But reading the story was like... Uh... <laughs> Unbelievably harrowing yes. for those of us who have potentially left our kid in the car for a few minutes while we ran in to do something. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so how, so do you, how do you reconcile that with what Tabitha told us? It's hard. I mean, that's a whole different perspective. Obviously, Tabitha's take is very black and white. It is her job to to feel like under any circumstances, it is always better to be safe than sorry. But this points out one of the things that people like me always worry about when we worry about should I call the police, which is maybe we ruin someone's life who really didn't actually do anything that wrong. And this is like an extreme case of like really screwing up someone's life who who I think I would argue didn't really actually do anything that wrong. Um, but but so here's where I, I don't draw even the line. know if it's an extreme case because this is probably the type of circumstance that, that people most often leave their kids in the car for. Yeah, right? yes, that's true. But it is an extreme case of what could happen to you in the end right. when the police get to you. Right. But so here's where I would sort of draw the line. I still feel like in my circumstance, I agree with Tabitha. I waited with those kids for like 10 or 15 minutes and no one showed up. It was really hot. I now f- wish that I had called the police, even though that has potentially really bad circumstances for that mom, because I feel like you, at 10 or 15 minutes, plus however long it takes for the police to get there, that is definitely too long to leave any child in the car. I feel like there's a functional difference between that and what the bystander in this story did, which was despite the fact that the bystander knew it worked out and knew that the mom was okay and the kid was in no danger, the bystander still, instead of maybe talking to her or just chalking it up to, you know, this worked out okay, the bystander still, I think, kind of passively aggressively just, you know, sent the the video to the cops so that this person could be punished later for something that ended up not actually being a crime. To me, that seems like you're... 
you are more taking the law into your own hands than you are letting the police make a judgment about whether the situation is dangerous or not. In the same way that I don't think the Tabitha's point was that I should not be taking the law into my own hands by deciding whether it's appropriate for them to be in the car this long. I also don't think I should take the law into my own hands by essentially forcing the police's hand, forcing them to because they have this evidence in hand uh, to press charges, which is more or less what you're doing when you don't even give the police a chance to talk to the person at the moment that this thing is happening. Yeah, I agree. And I think we should wrap this up because we've talked about it now in two episodes. But just quickly, Dan, have you left your kids in the car? Sure. I mean, I, I, when I go to school to pick up Harper from her like after school activity and I have Lyra with me, I frequently park in the circle in front of school, leave Lyra in there with a book uh, and run in to grab Harper and come back out. I totally do that. And you will continue to do that. I will probably continue to do that because I feel like that's an extremely safe environment. Lyra has a book and is completely happy on her own. It is, she is surrounded by parents who I know uh, in a school environment that I consider my kids safe in anyways. And that seems to me to be like totally defensible, but I'm sure someone will email me and tell me it's not. And maybe they're right. I don't know, but hopefully it'll be okay. Okay. On to topic two, Father's Day. Father's Day has always played second fiddle to Mother's Day, and this year is no exception. <laughs> In fact, we were going to skip it altogether on this podcast as it lands on June 15th, a week when we don't record. But I said, no, no, we cannot leave the honoring of our fathers to the double X Gab Fest, or worse yet, to people who don't have podcasts. So here we are, celebrating the very important holiday a week early. Since Dan's gimmick of having me rate various Mother's Day gifts was so successful, I have devised a rating gimmick of my own. Dan, are you ready? I'm ready. I'm going to ask you to rate yourself on a scale of 1 to 10 on a variety of traditional dad tasks and pastimes. One being emasculated 2014 dad, 10 being Archie Bunker. Okay. Ready? Smoking cigars. One. Zero. Playing catch. Uh, 10. I, in fact, 12. Archie Bunker never even got up off his chair. I'm better at catch than Archie Bunker. Okay. Fixing things. I mean, st- let's not stick too closely to Archie Bunker. You get my point. Okay. I yeah. get your point. <laughs> uh, fixing things like a two. I can set up a computer really well or a stereo system, but I, you should not look to me to use any kind of tool. Drinking beer. I like a six. Uh, honestly, even though I'm from Milwaukee, I prefer... Uh, like a cocktail, like, you know, a, like a, a Cosmo, a spritzer, <laughs> something like that. Bringing home the bacon. Uh, well, as measured by the actual split between my wife's income and mine, I would say that I am a three and she's a seven. Sitting on the couch. Ten. Ten. I'm so good at sitting on the couch. I'm amazing at it. Watching sports. Uh, well, if it's not nine-year-olds playing the sports, I'm quite good at it i'm i uh i put i'd say like i'm an eight i'm an eight at watching sports and probably some dads in the 1950s wouldn't even be willing to watch as much world cup soccer as i'm preparing to watch okay this one's gonna have to be a prediction what how do you how where do you think you'll fall on being scary to prospective dates uh i hope that i am a zero okay i have a very strong feelings that being scary to prospective dates is a super dick move for dads to make Grilling. Grilling prospective dates? Grilling, or grilling on the grill. Oh, grilling on the grill. I'm a 10. I'm great at grilling. Golfing? I'm, <laughs> well, the last time I golfed in 2003, 
I shot very well. So let's say I'm like an eight or nine. Hmm, that surprises me. Okay. I mean, I never golf, so I'll, that will never be contradicted. And finally, threatening to turn this car around. I am so good at threatening to turn this car around. Allison, if you don't stop asking me these incessant questions, we are going to pull over and immediately head home, and this vacation is not even going to happen. Okay, you seem like a pretty traditional dad. I'm a little bit of a traditional dad. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) All right, great. So now Dan and I are going to tell you guys about three lessons we've learned from our own fathers. Dan, take it away. Uh Uh, All right. So lesson number one, these are a mix of traditional lessons and I think slightly untraditional lessons. But lesson number one is that he, in fact, was the one who taught me how to field a grounder and then crow hop as you throw to first. It's the move that you make uh, on a throw to first to make sure that you have maximum momentum and accuracy on your throw. He taught me that move. It is a very useful move to have in any infield position. Uh, second of all, he taught me a very important lesson about driving. So my mom mostly taught me to drive because by the time that I learned to drive, my parents were divorced and she handled most of the car lessons, but he did do it now and then. And he taught me one thing that I still remember, which is that when you are turning a corner in a car, you brake for the first third of the turn, you coast for the second third of the turn. And then in the final third of the turn, you accelerate so that you are not just sort of drifting into that turn. It's very handy, and it's the proper way to make a turn, I think, and I will always believe that, and I will teach that to my kids. Uh, And finally, he taught me sort of more generally that being engaged in your community, in in like in volunteering and in supporting the arts and in cheering for the Milwaukee Brewers and going out to civic events, that if you do all those things, that can make for a pretty great life that really makes a difference for you and the people that you know and love. So thanks, Dad. I love that last one. And you follow that? I try to. I do a way worse job than him. But on the other hand, he's retired, so he has a lot of time to you know do shit like that. Did he do it while you were growing up? Not as much. But he, he, like many things in his life, he made a lot of drastic changes uh, right around the time he hit 50 or 55. And one of them was that. I mean, he was always an engaged guy. But one of them is that he embraced that completely, even to the point of his late career was he worked at Johnson Controls, which is a, a big company based in Milwaukee. It's a manufacturing company. But he was the guy in the communications department who's in charge of all civic outreach and all their charitable efforts and all the various things they did with the community in Milwaukee. That was like his thing. And he really embraced that later in life. So. And he still does it today. So my lessons that I learned from my dad. Uh, First, my dad never eats bread without butter and has dessert every night. (laughs) That is a good lesson. (laughs) And I also, I mean, bread without butter, maybe sometimes I'd like to dip bread into soup without butter. But generally, I believe if you're having a piece of bread with dinner, butter goes on it. And I have a bowl of chocolate Haagen-Dazs ice cream with almonds on it every single night. So I learned that from my father. And I think it's a wonderful way to live. Thanks, Dad. (laughs) Uh, money. My dad has always been neurotic about money. Some might call him cheap. Some have called him cheap. When planning for my wedding, he insisted that we could get six glasses out of every bottle of wine. And this was a wedding in, that, in that wine is country. Not true. I know. <laughs> this was a wedding in Sonoma. And he would rather starve than order room service. I don't think my father has ever ordered room service. However, my dad saved and saved. And I was lucky enough to grow up wishing he'd splurge more, but never wanting for a single thing. And he put me through college, so I never had to take out a single loan. And for that, I will always be grateful. And I hope that the lesson that he taught me is that it's better to be called cheap than to not be able to provide for your kids. He knew what he was doing. And I hope I do, too. That is a good lesson. Um, And then my dad taught me that teasing is a form of love and to have thick skin. My dad is really, he's the butt of a lot of jokes in our family and in our community. I was just home in Youngstown. I come from from Youngstown, Ohio. I was just home because my 
aunt and uncle got an honor at the synagogue, and it was this really wonderful event that was really kind of honoring my whole family. Um, and and everyone that I saw, many people who I hadn't seen in years, when they came up to me, they wanted to know about my kids, but they also wanted to roll their eyes about my dad because my dad, I don't know what it is about him, but he just drives people crazy. <laughs> But the thing is, he kind of <laughs> loves it. He doesn't mind it. I don't know that many people could take what he takes. Um, but he also gives it back. And I really think, you know, my husband and I sort of operate also in that mode that that teasing each other um, is a way that we show affection. And and I, I, he's definitely passed that on to me. So thanks, it even, Dad. It even manifests itself in how you treat your co-host, Salzen. <laughs> uh, those are all really great lessons. And I would love to meet. What's your dad's name? Bill Benedict. Bill Benedict. I would love to meet Bill Benedict sometime. <laughs> uh, so thank you, dads out there, for being awesome. Um, and happy Father's Day, Dan. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so let's go to recommendations. Um, Allison, do you have a great recommendation for us? I do, and it is a little bit um, based on thinking about my dad. So this is not a game that you can buy, but um, it is a game that you can play. When I was growing up, uh, my f- best friend Christina and I used came up with a game called Trash Can Football. And I'm going to explain in a second how, how it is played and encourage anybody that has a yard and a few trash cans to play it. Uh, but my father, who, as I said, was very neurotic, was involved in this game because on every weekend he would, in our driveway, uh, clean out the big trash cans, the big, like, you know, the big trash cans that you keep outside that you put, you know, that you drag down to the bottom of the driveway for the, for the garbage man to take. He would hose them out because he always liked to keep them very, very clean. And then Christine and I would set them up in the front yard. I don't know why we played this in the front yard where everyone could see instead of in the backyard, but I guess we, we had no shame. Because teasing is a form of fun. Right, right. So we, you separate them one on one end of the of the yard and one on the other, and you each get inside one large, <laughs> large trash can, and you throw the football back and forth. And when, you, you know, when you're reaching, trying to, gra- to catch the football, you inevitably fall over because you can't. <laughs> go anywhere because you're stuck inside a trash can and we played this for hours when i was little <laughs> so and there were, we never got injured so i recommend trash can football that is soon allison sweeping the, the nation when the concussion police have their way that will be the only kind of football our children will be allowed right, to play right uh that's amazing so uh that has inspired me i was going to recommend a book but i'm totally changing my recommendation to also a parental game this is not a game i played as a kid but it is a game that um alia played as a child and and it was invented by her dad beeman smith a fine man um who uh, is now my father-in-law and who has taught it to our kids. It is a game called Ho-Ho. It is good for slightly littler kids than the kinds of kids who might play trash can front yard football. But uh, it is a very simple game in which um, you uh, you lay on your back uh, on, a, on a bed or on the floor and with some soft things laid around you. And you place a child up on your knees, on your bent knees in front of you, and you ask that child questions. It's a great way to quiz kids on math or on spelling or on geography or on f- issues of philosophy or contemporary politics. Um, and then when they get a question right, you praise them. And when they get a question wrong, you yell, ho, ho. And then you open up your legs and they fall to the ground <laughs> laughing. 
And that apparently Alia played that with her dad basically every day until she was too big to fit on his knees anymore. Until she um, got everything right. Until she got every single thing right the day she graduated law school. And uh, and she still remembers that game very fondly as a as a great learning tool and also a way that she always felt very close to her dad. And so he plays it with our kids now. I play it with our kids now. Uh, and it is a also a testament to what great dads can do, which is to combine learning and plummeting from a terrifying height. I love that. So that's our show. Um, thanks for listening. Please email us at momanddad at slate.com to suggest topics or to recommend books or guests or whatever. And if you've got a question, please give us a call in any hour and we'll, and we'll try and answer it on the air. Leave us a message at 424-255-RUDE. That number again, 424-255-RUDE, like Allison and John Cook are to each other. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Just search for Mom and Dad Are Fighting and leave a comment or a rating. That really helps people find the show. It also pushes down further down the list the comment from the guy who described our show as, quote, entertaining in a John and Kate plus eight kind of way. And again, please tell your friends to listen to us if you like the show. Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slave Podcast is Andy Bowers. The Mom and Dad Are Fighting intern who helped us out with research on this and every episode is Laura Smith. Thank you, Allison. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for listening. 